Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journey. Take all of these proven techniques, you know, both the stuff that I had worked on, Clayton Christensen's work, a lot of these different techniques that have really made significant differences in in the success rate of innovations in the corporate world and figure out how can you take those into solving social issues. The framing the problem, the biggest challenge with framing it is the fact that there are a lot of moving pieces. There are a lot of players involved. It takes some some time and some effort to, to start pulling those things apart and also to define your scope. At some point you've got to choose what scope am I focused on. I'm very pleased today to introduce Sandra Bates. Sandra is an innovation entrepreneur and author who has worked in innovation and marketing strategy for more than 15 years. She's coached and led more than 100 innovation initiatives with dozens of companies with a rich history of innovation. Sandra has recently turned her focus to the needs of the social sector and founded the Innovation Partners, a group focused on generating social impact through innovation. Sandra's book, The Social Innovation Imperative, provides social entrepreneurs with a step-by-step approach to developing breakthrough products, programs and services to help society. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak to inspiring social entrepreneurs and it's a great privilege to talk to you after the time and work and energy you've spent focusing on the whole question of innovation and particularly social innovation. Terminology is often a, a question here as well. How would you distinguish between social innovation and a social entrepreneur or is there any distinctions there or, or is it a general kind of term that you use to try and capture the whole process of innovation in the social sphere? That's a great question because that is typically where most of the confusion comes from and another reason why I was, I was excited to hear uh, Christian's talk because he seems to be on the same page that I am where you know social innovation takes place, it's a process and the output of that process can be a social enterprise, a social entrepreneur, but it can also be socially beneficial product or solution that comes from a for-profit company. Innovation in a corporate context where you're an established organization is challenging in any case. I suppose in a situation where you have a startup or just a person and an idea or an aspiration or a couple of people and an aspiration, it's altogether more challenging. And I'm just wondering what you think of that. Well, that's a good question, too. And, you know, I think what's interesting at least a lot that I'm seeing these days in the States. I'm seeing this also in Spain. I do some work in Spain and in, in Brazil is that a lot of um, social entrepreneurs are starting to come out of regular corporations. Yeah. So yeah. they may be someone in a regular corporation, but we're seeing a lot of major corporations actually creating incubators right. on site where people can test ideas. Yes. Um, so I think in that case, obviously, they're going to have more resources than um, someone who's just trying to start this. Uh, the one thing I think is important for for new new entrepreneurs, people that are, are really trying to make a difference, they have a general area of what they're trying to accomplish. So whether it's trying to um, alleviate poverty, whether it's trying to bring medical services to, to third world countries, um, is to really kind of pick that area of focus and then you can treat this as any other process that you would in the business world or anything else that you would do. Um, and I think that's been always the myth between what innovation is and it isn't. 
Um, a lot of times people look at innovation and say, well, it's, you know, it's the, the flash in the pan. It's the brilliant ideas that pop out of Steve Jobs' head every, you know, um, every so often. And yet that does happen for some people, but not everyone thinks like that. And so the, the purpose of putting, identifying this process, which is, has been going on for about 20 years, there's been a lot of studies on what is the best process for innovation. Um, it really gives everyone the tools to be able to do to make a successful innovation happen because the, the key thing really is taking typically what happens is people will, will think that they can't start an entrepreneurship or an entrepreneur venture until they have an idea. Yes. And that's, that, that's backwards. Okay. So instead of starting with the idea, the first thing they should do is identify what space are they interested in? What market space or what social Avenue are they interested in? And then they should identify what the unmet needs are for that population. So, for instance, the, the woman who created the Embrace, um, the incubator for the infants, you know, obviously she, she looked at that space and said, oh, my gosh, you know, babies are dying. We need to fix this. They can't afford a $20,000 incubator. Um, how are we going to do this? And so now whether she did that um, in a very thorough way or whether she just was – tripped across this incidentally as far as being a, an opportunity um, there are ways to discover that by simply identifying what the needs are first in the market space that you're interested in and then developing ideas and solutions and programs and products or services that will address those needs you could probably go into developing country but indeed in the United States or to a community and there are pretty substantial social needs go into somewhere in India or something, you know, where, where do you begin? The idea of unmet needs, I mean, it just could be enormous, you know, you, you community with social breakdown and, and even in the health sphere, if you take one area, you know, how do you parse or bite that or, or, or define that question in such a way that you can get a meaningful outcome? It could be overwhelming. You could just think, well, actually, they want fresh water, not just for their taps, but for sanitation. For and you could maybe come up with fifteen different things that they need it for. But how do you then work out what's what's feasible or where to go next? When you're looking at the unmet needs, so you can let's say that you are um, interested in looking at the needs of starving children. So let's go back to the pumping net example. Um, if you were to go in and, and systematically evaluate that, what we look at is, is two different things. First of all, it needs to be a systematic approach. Okay, There is a process that will get you repeatable solutions, really good solutions that you have a very good chance of having it be successful. But it also has to be what we call systemic. Okay, So if you were going to go look at the issues around starving children in Western Africa, you would need to look at the needs of those children of the parents, of the caregivers, uh, you know, the uh, aid workers, of the um, the United, you know, whoever's providing the food source today, and possibly the government. And so, what what you have to kind of do is to look at the the whole picture. So, if you were looking at sanitation, same type of thing, you need to understand the needs that that maybe, you know, that is the most important need in a given area. But then you would have to dissect what's gone wrong okay so why don't they have it today and what are the barriers and in, in the book i call them constraints so there's there's human constraints which on the sanitation issue the whole you know there's a whole un push right now on this cultural acceptance of open defecation so that's part of the problem it's a human 
it's a human constraint that they think it's okay to do that. And so they resist some of the sanitation efforts. Um, on the other hand, you've got physical constraints or environmental constraints, and that could be the fact that there is no sewage uh, infrastructure or that the, you know, people can't afford a, a, a toilet that's a traditional what we think of as a toilet. So you have to not only look at the needs, but you have to look at them for all of the various stakeholders and then look at what is, what is prohibiting success today. And that's, that's how you're going to start solving the problem. Right, that's interesting. Yeah, and I, I like the way you talk about the stakeholders in a sense because it is a another dimension, I guess, to the challenge of being a social innovator, a social entrepreneur. That it's there are more parties that might be you know interested in this than you know if you were selling you know a piece of technology into a household or something like that. That you do have these other parties, including some that may benefit from the status quo. In any situation, there are people maybe who sell overpriced water, you know, services or something like that they are I guess a party to the system and will have an agenda exactly exactly and so we call those uh, you know we look for synergistic needs so you have to be able to develop a solution that is going to be acceptable to the people it's going to affect okay so for the starving children uh, if you know these moms are having to, to literally carry these these children for three or four miles through the jungle barefoot um, if, if the solution was such that the mom had to carry, you know, could only carry two or three days worth of supplies back with her, that would never work. You know, so understanding what her needs are, as well as the child's needs, like if, if, if the, the plumpy nut tasted terrible, the kids aren't going to eat it, right? And then on the other hand, so that's, that's where you get some synergy of needs and, and you can start to seeing where the, the packaging starts getting created and the, the form factor and how it, it would have to be. But then, like you said, you've also got to understand where there's conflicting needs. Yeah. And we see yeah. this in the healthcare space a lot, um, whether it's, uh, you know, you've got providers, physicians, healthcare professionals, the patients, the payers. Um, you know, they have some serious conflicting needs. You know, the doctor wants them to go on a specific regimen. The patient doesn't want to change. Um, you know, the doctor wants to order certain things and the payer doesn't want to pay for it. So you've got all of these different uh, conflicting needs that you also have to understand if you're going to be effective with your solution. And, you know, it, it probably seems like a lot of work for social entrepreneurs because they probably want to just jump in and just go solve the world's problems. But you got to remember these problems have been there for a long time. And there's a reason. It's because they're, they're big, wicked problems. They're complex. They involve a lot of people. They're intermingled with so many different factors that you have to be able to start teasing it apart if you want to make a difference. And when you look at solutions like that pumping nut, you'll see that had they – had they not taken into consideration the fact that most people receiving this would not have access to fresh water to mix up powder, which is what was happening before, they didn't have refrigeration, they needed to be able to carry weeks' worth of, of the therapy home back to their village. You know, you start looking at all these factors and you can see how, how why Plumpy Nut was so successful. And if they hadn't, you know, if, if they had stuck with, well, you know, the powdered milk thing in boxes and things like that, they would not have met so many of those needs and it would have failed. And, you know, so while social entrepreneurs often want to kind of just jump in and start solving the problem, if they don't think this stuff through first, it's going to bite them later. And frankly, you know, I think social entrepreneurs are the last ones that can afford that kind of failure. 
That's corporations, right, yeah. they can afford it. You know, they'll just they'll just start another R and D project somewhere else. But if this is your passion and your life, and you know you're you're throwing everything at it, and it doesn't work, that's not a good that's not a good return on your time or your life or your passion at all. Ian McMillan, who wrote the Social Entrepreneur's Playbook, just t- talks about I think a very important idea that there's so much at stake if you go into a community like uh, you know an impoverished community and you you promise some results and then it doesn't work out. There are serious consequences because people have relied upon you. They may have changed you know their behaviour and all kinds of things that go way beyond you know w- w- what's involved if you buy a piece of technology or something like that. Well, you're you're exactly right, and you think about it, it's this whole notion of do you start with the idea and then try to find how you're going to make it fit in there, right? Or do you start by understanding the entire context, the ecosystem, the constraints that are very, very real? I mean, one thing that just drives me nuts is when people talk about, you know, well, the sky's the limit. We can, you know, let's think way out of the box. And it's like, well, that's fine. I mean, think out of the box, but you know what? The, there are some very real constraints that you, you can't just wish away. You know, you can't wish away the fact that there's no refrigeration in these places in Africa. I mean, it just is. And what what innovators have to realize is that you have to accommodate for that. You have to innovate around that. And the, the most clever innovations are those that can address those constraints and get around them. Right. Because that, that's how you get a successful innovation in there. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's trying to get people to come out of this pattern of, of thinking that they have to have this brilliant idea fully baked and then go try to cram it into into the world as opposed to systematically studying the situation and developing your solution as a result of what you've learned because then your implementation is going to be it's not going to be a problem you would have you're covering all that to what extent are social entrepreneurs the audience for your book you know it's interesting because when i set out to write the book um and this probably shouldn't go in your your, cat, yeah. your webcast, but did you ever watch the movie Jerry Maguire? Yes. Okay. Do you remember when he had that meltdown in the in the hotel room and wrote his manifesto? Yes. That's what happened. Yeah. <laughs> because I was working on everything. I I had done like something like thirty projects for Microsoft. I had done dog food. I had done Hallmark greeting cards. I had worked on medical devices, printers. You name it. I probably had done a project on it, and I was sitting there in my hotel in whatever city and going, seriously, it's like if we've got this process that we've figured out that can help these companies avoid all these failures when it comes to innovation, why are we not bringing that to to the rest of the world? Why are we not bringing it to nonprofits? Why are we not bringing it to governments? Why are we not bringing it to people who are trying to solve very complex problems? So that's how, that's sort of the perspective I used for the book was, was more the process of, of taking apart a very difficult, complex question that you want to innovate about, that you want to create change in, and how do you do that? So that whatever you create, and again, whoever's going to create it, whether it's a social entrepreneur, a corporation, at the point that I wrote the book, I didn't care. I just wanted somebody to solve the problem, you know, and that's really the impetus for the book. I think it's right. What I was going to ask you is, 
what do you see as the biggest problems that people have working with this framework and particularly interested in social entrepreneurs? One of the things that interested me initially was in the field of conventional business, there's such an abundance of frameworks, systems, processes, ways of thinking about virtually every aspect of business development, uh, much less so in the area of social entrepreneurship. And I'm interested in transfer of, of knowledge and you know expertise to what extent are ideas that are used in conventional kind of a business context transferable and how can that be done and what, what are the really useful ideas that social entrepreneurs can take and make work? Right. Well, and I think there's there's a number of them. And, you know, that that was pretty much the whole framework for the book, too, is to take all of these proven techniques, you know, both the stuff that I had worked on, Clayton Christensen's work, a lot of these different techniques that have really made significant differences in in the success rate of innovations in the corporate world and figure out how can you take those into solving social issues. So now if you're a major nonprofit or if you're a government and, you know, you've got the time and the resources and the money to actually go through the whole process in its entirety, that's obviously the best way to do it. Um, what we are trying to do in a lot of cases is to find sponsors for big areas. Okay, so you look at a specific market space like, um, you know, bringing healthcare to third third world countries, and maybe even it's around a specific disease state. And once you identify that those needs and, and get them uh, and the constraints and everything we just talked about, that can then be opened up because it's public. You can make it public domain. That's the nice thing about social innovation. Nobody owns this data. The people that sponsor this, these types of studies want this information out there. I want the information out there so that if you're a social entrepreneur, Eventually, whenever this database gets created that I've been trying to build, um, you could go into the database and say, I'm looking for, uh, I'm interested in working with uh, pregnant teenagers. You know, do we have any data on the needs of preg pregnant teenagers? And they would be able to pull that set down, localize it for the, for the group that they're working on, and then get a major head start in developing solutions. So that's kind of the ultimate goal. Um, in the short term, I think when you've got, let's say, a single social entrepreneur that wants to apply some of these techniques, there, we've actually created what we call an impact jam, which is taking the process, which normally takes about three to four months, and squishes it down into about a week at the most. And, you know, a lot of the tools that, are, that we have on this, we've made open source, we make them freely available. Um, because our goal is to get the right tools in the hands of people that can drive change, that can that can create solutions that will make a difference. That's and that. so that's that's what I would suggest is that they they look at this compressed version of of the methodology. It may well be an idea that's from another domain. It's really, I guess, this question of transferability of innovations, which is a lot about behavioral change as well, you know, and best practice in that it, it may be, you know, in healthcare in, we say, West Africa, but just as applicable in sanitation in, yep. in India, you know, and finding ways, I guess, of, of framing the, the question in such a way that the process can be delivered at a level that, that it can be transferred from one area to another. Absolutely, absolutely. And see, I think part of that is is if, if you're looking at the needs from the beneficiary's perspective, right? So if you're, um, 
if you're trying to solve a problem, like you said, around healthcare in Africa, and you know that you have one specific constraint you're trying to overcome, okay, and let's say it's, uh, you know, the constraint is, uh, you know, the affordability of technology available today. That's right. kind of generic, yeah. but you kind of know where I'm going. You could look up that constraint across any study, across any innovations, you know, and hopefully this collaborate.org, this site might be where we host all this. And you would be able to find everyone else who's worked on anything to do with solving that problem. Again, if anywhere that you want resources to have as much impact as possible and not to, you know, reinvent the wheel. When you talk about this process and you're talking about you're jamming it and boiling it down, what's nice about it is it's integrated and linked together and takes you from one from the beginning to the end. If you were asked, you know, what are the, the one or two things that people have most difficulty with or challenge their existing frameworks or the way they look at things, what would you say? I would say it has to do with the framing of the problem. Uh, because this is typical with most what, what are in the literature called wicked problems, these very complex and intractable problems, is that enough time is not spent pulling the pieces apart to really understand what's behind it, okay, what's driving it, who's involved. And that's what in the book we call the blueprinting process. So we, we kind of blueprint that out. So I think that's the first thing that people need to do um, if they're going to look at a social entrepreneurship um, or social entrepreneur venture, they've got to really understand that landscape. And that is, can be something that they just do as a matter of their initial research and, and, and answer those questions. Uh, the second thing is to make sure that they go out and actually talk to the people in that ecosystem. So to just, you know, even go spend, you know, because it doesn't have to be a statistically valid study, which is what we recommend in the book, but, you know, it's still better than throwing a dart at something. If you go out and talk to, let's say, 10, um, you know, people that have worked in that field that can serve as experts, and you can talk to, you know, a handful of people that, that are in some of these other stakeholder components, um, you know, to get that level of, of understanding firsthand is critical. And a lot of people don't do that. What are some of the challenges here? and What's the best practice in framing a problem? I mean, I think it's a really interesting area. Well, I think the framing the problem, the biggest challenge with framing it is the fact that uh, there are a lot of moving pieces. Um, there are a lot of players involved. And it takes some, some time and some effort to, to start pulling those things apart and also to define your scope, right? Because like you said, at some point you could end up trying to boil the ocean, um, you know, because the problem is so big. Yes. At some point, you've got to choose what scope am I focused on. And so typically what we'll do is have people identify who's in the ecosystem. You know, who are all the various players that are in involved in this? So in the case of Plumpy Nut, you've got, like I said, the, the, the children that are malnourished. You've got their parents. You've got their, their village um Leaders, you've got the aid workers, you've got the international organizations that are providing the food aid, and you've got the government of, of their country who can be big barriers to, to solving the problem. And so once you map that out, uh, the next step we have people go through is to flow it in. It, it's kind of along the lines of service blueprinting where you look at, you know, who's doing what in this in this whole uh, process, you know, when, when we're looking at providing food aid to malnourished children, who's involved and what's their role? 
Okay, so what is their critical job that they're that they're responsible for? And and we break it into who's executing that part of the job at any given point and who's the recipient or the beneficiary. And then we'll map that over several different what we call contexts. So, uh, you know, you might look at uh, a pre-malnourished state. You might look at an emergency malnourished state, a post-malnourished state, because what happens is the players involved can change um, as you move through as you move through the problem cycle. Um, so same thing with healthcare. You know, you've got your your status quo. What's you know how are you maintaining your health today? You have the whole situation of if something happens to you, you get sick or injured. That's a whole different cast of characters. And then after that, you know, the recovery process can involve even more cast of characters. And then getting back to your new normal involves even more characters sometimes. And so by doing that very simple exercise, I mean, it's, it's two, two diagrams that probably would take somebody about, you know, a week to really think through and maybe research. Um, you know, that's going to give you a very clear lay of the land, a very clear understanding of, of who's involved, where the influence is, which may take, you know, again, some talking to people or in some cases, a lot of social entrepreneurs gravitate towards something they've personally experienced. And so they know these things firsthand. Um, so they can fill a lot of this out themselves um, without even necessarily talking to other people because they've been the beneficiary or the job executor. Um you know, and so it's it, that part alone will help them also identify where they want to focus their attention. You know, is it at that emergency malnourishment phase? Is it at the pre-malnourishment phase? Because now that that nutrient, the people that um, not nutrient, is that I can't remember the name of the company, uh, the, the group that makes Plumpy Nut. I mean, oh, yeah. now that they've kind of really done successful work in this uh, uh, emergency malnourishment you know, ideally, you'd want them to start looking at pre-malnourishment. You know, is there something that they could come up with that would, you know, shift the context away from the emergency situation so that it doesn't even have to happen, <laughs> you know, that it never gets that bad. So, again, that's just another way that you can kind of not boil the ocean, but you want to see where the ocean is. You want to know what it looks like. Yes. But then you got, you got to pick where you want to play. Yeah, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. I, I like the way you, you, you talk about that. This is something I would have asked at the very beginning, but some of the people I've interviewed, the term social entrepreneurship didn't exist when they started out. There were problems that they were interested in solving. And, and similarly, I suppose, the whole social innovation space, you know, formally, how it's formally evolved and so forth. How would you characterize the, the landscape? I mean, there's so much happening, it seems. And particularly younger people, they just seem to take this as a something for granted that, you know, it's it's an essential part of virtually everything that you do, that, you know, they don't make this distinction between profit-making and non-profit-making. Fundamentally, they're looking for everything that they're doing to have a social impact. That's, that's so true. And um, I've actually done a few speeches lately that I talk about what, we, what I call the perfect storm. And I think that's why I think this perfect storm is why we're seeing this this huge explosion in social innovation, and and that is the combination of three things: um, the basically the black eyes that corporations have given themselves, everything from the BP disaster to um, the Exxon, you know, implosion. All of these these things that corporations have done that have really ticked off the average person. 
um, just from a human, you don't do that perspective. So I think that's critical issue number one. The other two critical factors that I think are at play are the fact that you've got your baby boomers are in entering into and in well into sometimes what what we call their purpose years. You know, they've they've made it, they've done what they've set out to do, and they're looking for setting a legacy. They're trying to figure out how they can give back, how they can um, have meaning, you know, lasting meaning in their lives. So you've got, and these are often the people that are heading up major organizations, major foundations, they're contributing to major foundations. So you've got that at play. And then you've got the millennials. And the millennials is really the first generation in a long time that social issues are among their top priority. And so you, you combine all three of those and that you can see immediately why it's taking off. Right, right. And in a similar vein, what do they need to do better? <laughs> you, know, it, you know, where are we in the cycle? You know, I mean, absolutely, there's a lot of energy, there's a lot of commitment, there's a lot of intentionality around all of these, these questions. You've worked in, in, in many uh, contexts where, you know, uh, people excel at, I guess, systemizing, you know, innovation, but building processes and so forth. So I'm just wondering, in, in this kind of nascent movement, what are one or two things that you'd point to in terms of next steps? That's, a, that's an interesting question. You know, I think, uh, and, and some of this I, I, I heard from Christian's talk that I was like, yep, yep, that is exactly right. And there's also a great book by Victor Huang uh, called The Rainforest. I don't know if you've heard of that one yet. No. Nope. Um, where he talks about, you know, why is it that Silicon Valley got so successful in generating innovation after innovation after innovation? And it's about the ecosystem. Oh, right. It's I have seen this. Yeah. yeah, I have yeah. seen this. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, and so, and, and Christian talks about this too, that there's got to be this way of, of bringing people together so that, you know, they can be working on these things, but they're not recreating the wheel. And the other thing we can't afford is for failure to, to dampen everyone's spirits. And I'm, that's my biggest worry is that, you know, folks are going to go out there, they're going to throw ideas out there, they're not going to stick because they haven't done the background that we've talked about. And they're going to get discouraged and give up. And that would be the biggest disaster we would have because the momentum will die if that happens. So we've got to find ways to get tools and coaching and mentoring and uh, advising into these hands of these, these people that have such passion around these, these issues and get some of these major corporations or foundations to fund the necessary research that could really inform them. And, and make the successes happen. Um, you know, so it's, it's a matter of pairing up those, those larger entities that can could drive this type of information, you know, building out this information resource, um, as well as creating the infrastructures like Sandbox and things like that that are, are propping up and supporting and mentoring the, the, the excited folks that want to participate. So, you know, if you can bring both of those together, then that's huge. Yes, absolutely. And I think people often say that there isn't a IBM or a Google, <laughs> a huge, you know, large scale, you know, social enterprise. They don't exist. I suppose that's not necessary. You know, some of these organizations, if they grew up today, they would have a much more networked status with, you know, all kinds of nodes and ways of interacting and so forth that might not exist in one, you know, organizational context. And that the idea of various kinds of networks is a very powerful one when it comes to social innovation. 
Yes, and you know, there's a uh, this whole movement right now that's going on uh, based on Michael Porter and Mark Kramer's uh, Harvard Business Review article. I believe it was in January of 2011. It's called Creating Shared Value, and that movement is starting to take root. And and that movement, what it talks about is that corporations have got to start thinking about not just corporate social responsibility, but they have to find ways of creating value for the triple bottom line, essentially. So for people, for the planet, and for themselves. And so, you know, the fact that, and and Christian alluded to this too, that too many times people think, well, if you're in a social sector, you're not allowed to make money. Well, that's silly. I mean, you know, of course you can make money. Um, If you're producing a good product, there's no reason you can't make money at that. But, you know, are you focused on all three factors? Are you focused on the impact on the people, the impact on the planet, as well as the impact on your profits? And so it's getting those aligned. And I think that, you know, as more corporations start doing that, um, and if we can get foundations, which has been a very big struggle, (laughs) I can guarantee you that, to really understand that they, they could be more impactful if they got more methodical about what their approach is, um, I, I think that would go a long ways to, to funding some of this. But you still have a lot of organizations that are doing it the old way. You know, you know, these major, major, major foundations open it up for grants. You know, and again, what are they looking for? They're looking for ideas. Instead of sponsoring the research to identify the needs that they can then open up and say, here are all the needs around this particular issue. So everybody go try to find a solution for this. That's, that's the role I see these foundations should be in. Well, that's very interesting. I think this is a great interview here, and I'm just wondering if I just tack on one or two questions what I would normally ask at the beginning. And time shift that to the front of the interview. <laughs> and it, no, no, I think there's some great content here. You know, and, and, and we can always come back in, you know, in, in a few months' time or something and discuss a particular topic. But I mean, I think there's some real meat here that's interesting coming from your, your you know, the time and work you've spent on all these questions. So I suppose the, the, the question I, well, I would start with, so can you tell me a little bit about your background <laughs> and how you came to, you know, to write this book? Sure. So I started out working in uh, corporate innovation and marketing um, about 20 years ago, where uh, I did consulting for a good chunk of time, about 12 years, where I worked with major corporations in just about every industry, um, from tech, high technology to medical devices to services, healthcare, um, consumer goods, and, and even nonprofits and government organizations. And what we spent the past 15 years doing is, is applying more systematic methodologies to the whole notion of innovation so that we could reduce and eliminate, hopefully eventually, the risk of failure of innovations because the failure rate at the time we started this was around 90%. So about 90% of innovations that were, were launched failed. And so a lot of the work that the organization I was previously with had done and work from Harvard and business school has done has really been seeking to uncover the why behind that and try to identify how we can eliminate some of that risk. And so when in the process of Doing that kind of work, as I mentioned, I, I did do a couple of projects for some nonprofits 
I started really looking at, well, how could you apply this to even bigger issues? You know, how could you apply this to solving issues around our healthcare system? And how could you apply it to education? And how could you apply it to how governments budget their money? <laughs> and how could you apply it to solving poverty and, and hunger? So it, I started out looking at the transferability, the applicability of what we were doing in the corporate world and spent about two to three years kind of pulling this whole thing together in terms of, of customizing what we were doing for the corporations and putting it into a format that made sense for social issues. The, the biggest issue being the complexity, because even, even though we had very complex B2B situations in the corporate world, they're nothing like the complexity involved in poverty alleviation. So that's essentially what, what spurred the book. That's very interesting. Thank you. Yeah. I'm just wondering uh, also, to what extent are you interested in or to what extent do you think that the ideas around the lean startup and the business model canvas are interesting and useful for social innovation, social entrepreneurs, more the organizational building side of it, I suppose, but um, new ideas that I think are inspiring? I love it. Um, frankly, in, in the, one of the chapters in my book and, and in step five of, of the process that I outlined in the book is the development of the business model, which, again, looking at it from the social side, that, that was kind of taboo. Um, why would you be talking about a business model when you're talking about a social innovation? And again, it comes down to, well, because if you don't think about that, it's not going to work. You have to know where is, where is this going to get funded? Who, who could be your partners? I love the business model canvas. Um, I use it extensively. Um, I reference it in the book. Uh, I, I think it's imperative for people to use that as a tool. You know, it's a, it's a, a good thought-provoking tool and a good creativity tool for them to think through their business model in various aspects. And um, I think it's fantastic. Um, I see a lot of application in the lean startup world as well. Um, again, I just the key thing I would emphasize is is not to not to start with the idea. I mean, even if you've got an idea, that's great. Uh, but the thing is is make sure that you have validated that there really is a market there. and And don't think that you need to have the idea before you start. You don't have to have the idea before you start. I spoke to Alex last week, actually, um, off of this podcast. He had an interesting uh, idea. I think one of the things that's really nice about that book is the is is his enumeration of different kinds of business models. Um, and I was, I, I think, something like that in the social space would be very interesting too. He suggested that you know one way of dealing with um, using these uh, ideas in, in social entrepreneurship would be to to kind of add another layer which looks at the impact to add that on top of it um, which certainly is I, I think an interesting idea I also think further thinking in terms of different kinds of social business models would be very interesting and powerful absolutely and um, you know one thing that I did add in, in the book, in, in my book from the business model canvas. So I took the business model canvas from, from their, the uh, business model generation book, but I did add two other components and that is the societal value as, as a positive and then the environmental impact as a potential positive or negative. So, um, so I've actually got two additional blocks in my business model that, that have to be addressed as well. And um, again, they can be, you know, looking at the positive 
uh, societal impact or the negative. You know, is it going to have a negative effect? Um, and same thing on the environment. So we're looking at the people, the planet, as well as the overall structure of how you're going to create a profit. Brilliant, brilliant. That's very interesting. Excellent. Um, I, I will ask one other question because I did think it was quite interesting and you kind of answered it a little bit yourself talking about foundations. In, inevitably, the question of financing social entrepreneurship is important. There seem to be many kind of hybrid models emerging with for-profit and not-for-profit and, and there's the impact investing. When it comes to something like the foundation side of things, what would you recommend or what, given your experience, what would you say to social entrepreneurs, social innovators that want to tap into that uh, possibility? Well, I would recommend that they do. And, and this is something that I think it, it can be a push and a pull. So if we can get foundations to start requiring that people do this kind of upfront thinking about the problem first, um, it can start pulling people in that direction. But by the same token, if, if you've got social entrepreneurs who are putting these beautiful cases together and submitting them as their grant proposals to these foundations, you know, these foundations are going to start seeing that this is, you know, wow. I mean, you know, they've got the data behind this. This isn't just an idea. They've got data behind it. And I think that's where it really starts having a bigger impact um, in the success rate. And, and I think that looking at the different business models, you know, they're, again, like we talked about at the beginning, the difference between social innovation and social entrepreneurship is just which came first. You know, the social innovation is the process by which a social innovation happens um, or social entrepreneurship is launched. So, it, it, you know, you can still be a social innovator in a for-profit company and creating a for-profit company. Um, and there's a lot of hybrids out there now. Like you said, there's the B corporations. There's all kinds of different, um, you know, mission-driven corporations, things like that, where they're not prohibited from making a, a profit, but their mission comes first before the stakeholders. Yeah, it's it's very it's very exciting the that these different forms that they're taking, and uh, I think great potential to to allow further flourishing and development of social change of you know um, so it's, it's very exciting and I, I thank you very much Sandra that's been very interesting a lot of really uh, interesting ideas and frameworks there to think about to create social innovation and to do to increase your chances of success <laughs> um, uh, so, th so thank you very much for, for, for that um, and where can people find your book it's on Amazon, uh, both on hardcover as well as in the Kindle format. Um, so it's at, it's called The Social Innovation Imperative uh, by McGraw-Hill, um, published 2012. That's been great, Sandra. I, I really appreciate that. Um, I think that's been very helpful. I've done quite a few interviews now, but I just like your, your clarity about you know the, the process and, and so forth. I think it's really clear and I'm sure um, doing lots of good work with, with, with that. Oh, well, thank you. I, I appreciate the invitation to, to speak to you. It's, it's been very, very good interview and I, I like the questions. They were very good questions. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur Podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.